to uh, Wilmore and my uh, colleagues say, well, where were you this week? I'm going to say, Bayshore. <laughs> As a Canadian, I continue to learn some amazing things about how you Americans uh, choose to uh, talk and speak, but I have to suggest that I have never said Bayshore like Bayshore. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to uh, Isaiah, the sixth chapter. What we're looking at <clears throat> this week is, is really centered around what I hope is an expectation that is growing in your spirit that we got to have God show up in a fresh and new way if we're going to see his purposes accomplished in our generation. I suggested to you last evening that uh, one of the most beautiful epitaphs is the one that is written in Acts about King David. It says, King David was laid to rest with his fathers, having served the purposes of God in his generation. It's so critical that that is our sense of calling as those who name the name of Christ. And we're praying for God to create another fullness of time. It seems like he's delayed in some ways. We wonder, God, where are you? Uh, things are, are getting more and more difficult. Things are are eroding faster than any of us could have possibly imagined. You look at our Western culture, and could we have imagined 20 years ago that we would be facing the kinds of social cultural issues about sexual identity, about marriage, about a wide variety of things? Our, you know, our parents couldn't have imagined the grandparents who prayed over and walked these grounds couldn't have comprehended the fact that our culture, which is hopefully anchored in Christian principle and practice, and with the authority of the scriptures and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that our culture could erode so quickly. This morning we were talking about and teaching out of, the, out of Psalm 120, where the emphasis there is on the psalmist decrying the fact that he lives in a culture of absolute deceit, that truth has become compromised. And we live in a culture just like that today. <clears throat> One of the common phrases you'll hear uh, when people are trying to, quote, find themselves, well, you need to find your truth and live in it. You need to live your truth. And the idea that there could even be some kind of absolute set of standards has become less and less something that the common culture of the Western church or the Western society is willing to embrace. And so we need God to show up. And we need to show him to show up in a particular way that gets our attention. And so we've been talking about this idea that in every age, God is a plan. Uh, and as you look at this age, sometimes maybe you're tempted to say, God, you know, I, I wish I could have been born... Um, 75 years ago, oh, I guess I was, uh, God, God, I wish I could have been born 150 years ago, or maybe I wish I could have been born during the time of, of Jesus. I wish I could have been born during the time of the great revivals. I wish I could have stood on the street corner with, with uh, John Wesley and heard him proclaim the great truths of the gospel. But God has a plan, and from the foundation of time, he knew that you and me needed to be alive and spiritually well for this time. 
like King David, we have been called to serve the purposes of God in this generation. It's interesting that the verse doesn't close there. It's a little bit of a sobering verse. It says, and King David was laid to rest uh, with his fathers, having served the purposes of God in his generation. And the Greek actually says, and then his body rotted. So we, whatever the timing is here in terms of the eternal kingdom calendar that God has got planned, whether we'll be alive, we all pray to that end, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, or whether essentially our ministry, <clears throat> I'm going to make it a little more palatable, becomes the fertilizer for the next generation of what God is going to do. And in every generation, God has called the people, and those people have been prepared for a moment in time that we can fulfill in that moment that God gives us the ultimate purpose for his fullness of time for that particular historical era. And so we live, I believe, in what is going to be an unfolding fullness of time. And that means then that God has a specific moment in time opportunity for each and every one of us to contribute to what it is God wants to do. We talked yesterday about, the last evening, about the two folk who had labored faithfully in Jerusalem, one a faithful layman, Simeon, who had uh, cultivated, even in, the, in that context of, of, a, uh, of, of a very poor spiritual environment, of a difficult spiritual situation where grace had given way to rules and regulations and you earned your, your righteousness by what you did or didn't do. But Simeon somehow had cultivated a sensitivity to the Spirit of God. And he was basically living all of these years, we don't know how many, 60, 70, 80 years, for one moment. And that was to be prompted by the Holy Spirit to go into the temple at the very time that the Holy Family was bringing Jesus to dedicate this boy to the Lord and to proclaim the truth that the Holy Family, I think, understood had a sense about, they knew that Jesus had been called to something particularly different than any other young man had been called to. But it was Simeon who was given the privilege of communicating the depth of Jesus's saving ministry and communicating the implications of it. Not everybody is going to rise up and shout hallelujah because of Jesus's ministry. He's going to be challenging that which is at opposition to the very things that God desires for his people to be committed to and, and to become. And then you have this dear Saint Anna. Uh, you know, she's, I, I think, one of the most interesting figures uh, in the Christ, Christmas story because we know so little about her except this. For 75-plus years... Ever since the time she was a widow, she dedicated herself to the Lord's service. And she wasn't a priest. She didn't have any kind of, of full authority or responsibility that would give her honor. She essentially was a, a scrub maid. She was somebody who guaranteed that the temple was clean and taken care of. And she'd been faithfully serving God in that particular place. And like Simeon, who God had promised, and Simeon declares it, that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's saving 
of uh, presence in Jesus, she too knew that that was her privilege to be there to affirm the calling of Jesus. And, and what was it that was the source of their faith and confidence? Why were they so <clears throat> determined, so uh, motivated to be faithful? It's because they trusted God's word. And they trusted a particular portion of God's word that really was for them the hope-giving, life-giving, joy-affirming, joy-providing promise that would come from Isaiah. We know that Isaiah himself, and we'll read some of his story here in chapter 6, uh, came onto the scene uh, at a particular point in the history of, uh, of Israel. Uh, he's living in Judah, in that, that particular part of, of uh, the Holy Land. Uh, and what it says beginning in verse 1 is that in the year that King Uzziah died, this is now Isaiah, I saw the Lord. Now, eventually, as we work through this story, you'll see what God did to equip Isaiah to be the declarer of those promises that would sustain people for generation after generation after generation. His words would become the hope lamps, so to speak, the harbor lights, if you excuse my Coast Guard uh, uh, illustration, the harbor lights for guiding people into the safe harbor that Jesus would eventually provide. And so it's interesting that, that Isaiah, who we think was uh, obviously called to be a prophet, there's some implication for that, an indication, <clears throat> and, and you, know, you would think that he should have been seeing God clearly, but there was something in the way. Matter of fact, that something was a someone, and that someone was the king, Uzziah. Now, Uzziah was one of the longest-serving kings of, uh, of Judah. We, Depending on which chronology you use, he served somewhere between 45 and 55 years. Uh, mixed bag in terms of his results. You know that uh, God never intended for Israel to have kings. The uh, basic nation was to be guided by prophets and priests, but they got, you know, anxiety and and they got envy and everybody else has got a king. Why can't we have a king too? And God just said, "Enough's enough. I'll give you a king. Ultimately, you're going to have a king of kings. But if you really think you need a king, let me give you a, a bunch of them." And you know, as Doctor Phil would say, that you know, TV psychologist. How's that working out for you? How's that working for you? Because very few of those kings, act, and even the best of them, King David and Solomon, who were considered to be the best of the kings, had feet of clay and were not worthy of full worship. What happens so often to us is that we long for leadership. This is an area where I teach at Asbury Seminary. I teach in the Doctor of Ministry program and organizational leadership and pastoral leadership and church leadership. And we, we have built into us a need to have someone lead us. And the people of Israel had that particular need. And so because everybody else had a king, they wanted to have a king too. And Uzziah, for whatever reasons, had captured, we think, 
this is some inference here, taking some liberty with the text, text had captured um, Isaiah's attention. Because it isn't until the king is dead that Isaiah has this full revelation of who God is. One of the dangers we have in this day and age, particularly within the Christian movement, is that we'll look for kings rather than the king of kings. We'll look to leaders, hoping in some way that, that they can help us. And fundamentally, God's servants are there to bring us into his presence. They're not there for us to go to him through them. We fundamentally have a disagreement with our Roman Catholic friends. We believe that there's no longer any more need for an intermediary. We can go directly to God. But there's something in us, and there must have been something uh, here in Isaiah that caused him to put too much trust and too much confidence in leadership to the point that the leaders who were trying to point people to God ended up, some intentionally, some unintentionally, having the people look to them rather than to the one that the serving the servant was trying to serve. One of my uh, stints in terms of ministry responsibility was to serve in a church that had been our local church in Virginia Beach. A young pastor had come in there and taken this congregation from about 50 in about 10 years. We were running over 2,000 on Sunday morning. People were getting saved every week. He was a dynamic preacher. He was uh, one of these young, uh, uh, kind of charismatic in the best sense of that word, kind of personalities. You instantly liked him. And so the people became more and more attached to our pastor and wanting to know. He would rotate sometimes the preaching, and often on Friday there would be phone calls coming to the office. Who's preaching this Sunday? And if it wasn't the pastor, they didn't come. And I could give you illustration after illustration after illustration how this charismatic, talented, gifted young man became the focus, became the king in our congregation. But this young man had feet of clay. And earlier in his ministry, he had struggled with some sexual sin. He was married now with four children. But things were going so well that he let his guard down. And before you knew it, he had found himself back into the very sexual sins that he had been delivered from. And it was finally exposed. The Bible says that sooner or later, our sins will be shouted from the housetops. They're going to be revealed. And you can imagine the impact on that congregation. Nancy and I were uh, at Asbury Seminary at the time, and I got a call from uh, the official board of that congregation saying, Dave, is there any way that you could come back and maybe pastor us for a year or two to get us through this very difficult time? And they asked me to come uh, the, for the evening that this young pastor was going to get up and publicly confess and ask forgiveness from the congregation. And it was my responsibility to somehow help through that proclamation and get the congregation moving forward. Uh, his re repentance, I believe, was genuine. 
And obviously he couldn't continue to, to serve in a pastoral leadership role. And so uh, the official board, uh, the session as it's called in that Presbyterian context, um, made the decision that they would support him and the family for the next year or so, so that he could get counseling with the idea that hopefully he could be restored to ministry. Well, that was had interesting reactions in the congregation. As I came on board as the interim pastor to help them through this transition, I had a, a portion, I'd say probably about 20%, who decided they were so disappointed that they could never trust another spiritual leader. And so they left the church, and many of them, tragically, many of them young people, left the faith because this person to whom they had looked for primary direction and leadership essentially had turned out to be a sham, to be false, to be a cracked chip vessel. I had another percentage of the congregation that decided to leave because there was no way that they were going to continue to attend a church that was going to financially support a sinner. And so another 20% of the congregation left. But the good news was we cleaned out those two groups and we were left with 60% who said, what an opportunity to finally once again look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. One of the concerns I had is that they were going to look to me as someone to come in and save the church. But the good news was there was enough maturity in that congregation to realize that they had been looking in the wrong direction, that they needed to look to God and to see him revealed. And interestingly enough, during that next year, as we tried to, to focus our attention on the one who preachers serve, the one to whom preachers are responsible and Christian leaders are responsible to point people's attention, they began to discover fresh ideas. Now, it wasn't that I didn't have problems. I had people coming into my office. Uh, I remember one couple came in, made an appointment to see me, and said, uh, uh, Pastor Geertsen, uh, we believe we need to be divorced. And I said, oh, uh, why is that? And they said, well, we got our premarital counseling from Pastor Dave. And he was obviously in sin when he was counseling us. So we think probably we got bad counsel. And, you know, marriage is not always, you know, a bed of roses. Got some thorns buried in there. And the thorns were beginning to appear. And they decided this was their excuse to leave. It's, it's a terrible thing when a leader, comp a Christian leader compromises because the ripple effects. And then we had, as I mentioned earlier, um, uh, children of our congregational members who stayed, who were so disillusioned and disappointed that they in turn left the faith. And many of them today have never returned to the faith because of this leader who didn't point people to Jesus. Now, when God gets ready to do something, he's got a people who are going to give all of the glory to him, not take any of it for himself. And so what's happening here is that in this Kairos moment, in this moment in time, when God is getting ready to lay the foundation for the fullness of time when Jesus is going to come, he needs a spokesperson. 
but he needs a spokesperson who's got their focus in the right place. And so the whole call in this Kairos moment, this moment in time, to Isaiah is when King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord for who he really is. I saw him high and lifted up on his throne. I saw him in these majestic visions of the one who is worthy of all prayer, praise, all worship, all honor and glory. His train filled the temple, and there were ministering beasts around him who were flying. This is an interesting thing. We don't have time to go into the, the imagery here. Big birds that had six wings, and two they covered their face, and two they covered uh, their feet, and, and with two they flew. But what they were doing was singing about the nature of God. Holy is God. Holy is the one. He is the one to whom all glory and honor should belong. And so Isaiah is getting a fresh revelation of who the real king is. He's getting a fresh revelation of what the power of the king is because the very doorposts of the temple were shaken. Don't you long sometimes in your church were just to be shaken by the power and presence of God. And that this one who was the almighty, the one who had promised from the foundation of time that he would redeem his people, was going to reveal himself in fullness, in glory, in power, but also in mercy and grace and forgiveness. And he needed a spokesperson to send that message. He was going to choose not to send Gabriel. Bless Gabriel's heart. He had some responsibilities. He took care of them in the, uh, in the Christmas narrative and was, did what he was supposed to do. But God, and here's the mystery, folks, he chooses to accomplish his perfect will through people just like us. Isn't that amazing? That he chooses to entrust to us the opportunities, the ministries, the responsibilities, the witness to the glory of who he is into our hands to communicate. And he needed someone who really got it, who understood who God was. Now, it's interesting because I think so often there's just a little bit of reservation in our witness when it get, or in our, in our worship when it gets to a particular level of intensity. It's like, whoa, that may be enough. There's, there's almost an inbred fear in many Christians that if I really see God for who he is, if I really am exposed to the holiness of the Holy One, then those secret hidden parts in my life are going to be illuminated. Often we don't go deeper in worship because we're fearful of what worship will reveal in each of our own lives. We're fearful of the light. Every one of us have these little corners God is working. We know that we're saved, but we're in the process of working out our salvation. For us in the Wesleyan holiness movement, we understand that to be the sanctifying, cleansing, purifying work of the Holy Spirit. We're sanctified in a moment because we've made the decision, but then it takes a lifetime for that sanctification to work its fullness in order to conform us into the image of Jesus so that when we go from this life to the next, we shall know him because we've become like him in terms of that conforming work of the Holy Spirit. And so often we are fearful because we think 
what could happen to us is the very thing that happened to Isaiah. As he's marveling and, and perhaps shaking in his sandals about all that he's seen, suddenly the true nature of who he is spiritually is revealed. Woe is me. That can't be expressed as intensely in the English language as it is in the Hebrew. It is, I am so greatly exposed. Matter of fact, the Hebrew, I mentioned this morning in the teaching, in this particular case, where it's translated, uh, for I am undone, uh, really says, I've been caught with my pants down. I'm fully exposed. Nothing's hidden. That when you come into the full glow of God's presence and power, the light will go everywhere, and you will be fully exposed. And so he's exposed. And what's exposed in him is the root source of his sin. You see, he's supposed to be a prophet. So the issue is, what kind of a prophet is he or was he? We know that there have been prophets who essentially um, prophesied uh, for financial benefit. Uh, you want a prophecy? Give me 10 bucks. I'll give you a word. Uh, unfortunately, we still have some of that going on in, uh, in some circles that profess to be anointed by and following the Holy Spirit. You know, Andy up $100, and we'll send you a prayer cloth, and through that prayer cloth, you'll get a special blessing. And, you know, the, the commercialization of the ministry. In some cases, the prophets were hesitant to share the whole truth of what God was wanting the people to hear. In other cases, uh, they were making stuff up uh, just because they didn't want people to see. You remember the story about Moses after he came down from the mountain, his face was glowing so much that the people said, well, you know, put, put, put a scarf over your face, will you? Because it's just a little too much uh, for us to have to encounter because we know you've been with the Lord. But after the, uh, the glow faded, he kept the mask on because he didn't want people to know the glow had faded. Boy, we're dealing with that in so many of our Christian lives and walks. We, we put on masks and we, we want to be sure that we're, we're playing the part in some particular way. We don't know specifically what Isaiah's problem was, but we do know it was rooted in his prophetic calling. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the ultimate one who is truth, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so I've been totally exposed. And you can imagine the intensity of this particular uh, revelation for him. Here he's been a prophet. He's been doing his thing. Uh, we're not sure exactly how he did his thing and what the motivations were for doing his thing. But in the presence of the Holy One of God, it's revealed that his motivations, his intentionalities, and his readiness to do all that God had planned for him in this Kairos moment for his life, he was not cleansed for. And so you've got this pathos, this, this heaviness that begins to engulf the story at this particular point. But then, but then, one of the interesting uh, sermons I heard years ago was an African-American brother in Christ who preached a whole message. And by the way, when our African-American brothers preach, they preach for about two hours. 
So he preached a whole message on God's butts. And he went through from Genesis to Revelation. He started, of course, where, you know, the, the, uh, where, where uh, God put the prophet, uh, you know, in the, in the cleft of the rock and all he could see was God's behind. He kind of started there. But he went through from Genesis to Revelation, pulled out every verse where it began, but God, but God, but God. Here's a but God moment. As Isaiah is fully exposed, nothing hidden, realizing that he's not fully equipped for the kinds of things that that God is going to ask him to do, and sensing that the root of his ill-equipping is something to do with his communication. And so he confesses, I live in a foul-mouthed culture, in my own mouth doesn't speak the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so God in his prevenient grace and his proactive grace sends one of the seraphims to the altar of sacrifice. And that seraphim pulls off the altar of coal and comes and touches his forehead. No. Touches his heart. No. Touches his cheek. No, what's the source of the sin? His lips. And so the seraphim, as the ambassador of God's forgiveness and grace, declares to him, by this, you have been cleansed. Now, I grew up in, in a conservative, very conservative holiness movement, but was very demonstrative. Uh, I mean, we would have people jumping up and shouting and uh, praising God and doing little two steps and running around. I mean, it was, it was really quite a, it was the best show in town for a kid off the streets going to these holiness prayer meetings or holiness camp meetings. It was really something. And, but when a person would get touched by God in those meetings, wow, wow. It was like Roman candles. They knew that they had been touched by God. And I think that was true for Isaiah. Can you imagine here he has been exposed to this, incredible picture of the holy God, the God Almighty, the God of creation. And then that exposure has revealed in him how short he has fallen of what the created God had intended him to be. And the source of his sin has been revealed. And again, we don't, we don't have enough detail here, so hopefully we're using sanctified imagination, that perhaps every time he had misused his lips, and this encounter with the temple of God, of God seated on the throne, there, were the, there was this remembrance. Oh, yeah, I did, yeah, okay, uh-huh. Mm. And there's in, increasing grief, increasing sadness, growing, welling up within him. And then the elation, you're down as far as you can go, and suddenly now you have been cleansed. The God who is the Holy One has now sent an angel to ensure that you can be holy too. And so you can imagine what his elation might have been. Again, we don't know, I have enough detail in terms of what time is spent, but once, once he's finished having his glory fit, as we used to call them uh, back in the day where I was growing up, uh, kind of a calmness settles in. And then the scene changes. And God begins to say basically um, this. Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? 
Because there are a whole bunch of people out there that need this touch, just like I've touched Isaiah. And, and again, my, my imagination can kind of run away with itself, but I can see here's Isaiah down here. God's up on his throne, and God's kind of, whom shall I send? Anybody out there, go for me. Isaiah looks around. He's the only one standing there. Okay? So he doesn't feel necessarily forced, but because he's been forgiven much, he's willing to commit much. And so he jumps up and says, hey, hey down here. Here am I. Send me. Send me. When we are deeply touched by God, when we are forgiven much, when God calls, there is something within us that just compels us to want to rise up and say, Lord, for what you've done for me, can I do something for you? I hear the call. In the seminary, we deal with uh, men and women who essentially the, the, the most important thing I have to do as a faculty member uh, in uh, training the next generation of ecclesial leaders and pastoral leaders is help them to discern the depth and reality of their call. Are they really called, or did some dear saint tell them one day in church, you know, you should be a pastor. Uh, you know, a lot of people have been called into the ministry by well-meaning saints who decided, well, you know, he doesn't look too bad, or, uh, you know, he, 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 he's able to, to communicate a little bit here, and, and, and uh, you know, God wants you in the ministry. Well, we get a few people that come through our seminary doors where we as faculty have to say, I'm sorry, sister or brother, but uh, in terms of formal ministry, we don't think that's your call. That's a tough thing to have to do to help people discern their call. And in the work I do in terms of crisis intervention with Christian leaders in crisis, one of the first things I do is to see whether or not they have a deeply rooted call that was really a call in the first place. And so we go back to, tell me when you first felt the call. How did you know you were called? What was it that God used to confirm the call in your life, that you were willing to say yes to come? And I found that so many Christian leaders who are in crisis, by taking them back, as Jesus did with Peter, to that first call. Remember there at the end of Matthew, the, the process that God uses to restore a fallen Peter and an absent Peter is to take him right back to the beginning, to repeat the fish story, and to confront him with the realities that the same God who called you is capable now as you turn to him to call you again and to give you a fresh ministry. And so Isaiah feels the call. And interestingly enough, God doesn't say, Woo! Let's go for it. Here's what you need to do next. No. Remember, God is the God of truth. He wants... Isaiah to know the whole story of what he's getting into. And this next portion of Isaiah 6 deals with something that's a little hard to translate. It looks like he's supposed to tell people uh, in ways that they shouldn't hear, but his message is, uh, God says to him, you tell these people you're constantly hearing the good news, but you're deaf to it. You're just not responding to it. You're, you're constantly seeing the works of God, but you're unable to really comprehend them and see them, uh, that they were, they were a stiff-necked people. They were uh, a people hard of hearing and blinded in their sight spiritually. Even their religious activities 
which they thought were what God wanted, was not producing the kind of holy life that would be uh, something that God could use to fulfill his kairos moments in their life. And so he says, this is what you're getting set up for. You're going to have quite a ministry here of ministering your entire life, uh, and uh, people aren't going to believe a word you say. You know, in, in, in your generation, most of the people are going to poo-poo. Oh, that's just crazy Isaiah. You know, uh, he got a little touched in the head, thought he saw God, and, uh, you know, they're not going to listen to him. And Isaiah says, you know, if the bishop came along and, and offered you an appointment like that, going to send you to a church, and, and these are the worst people you can possibly imagine. They're, they're not going to tithe. They're going to have you for lunch every Sunday after dinner and have you for lunch, not have you to lunch, going to have you for lunch, you know, and on and on. Would you want that appointment? And so Isaiah says, oh, okay, uh, maybe I was just a little too excited uh, about volunteering, but he says, how long, O Lord? And God tells him the truth. You're going to have a ministry that in your lifetime you're not going to see the fruit of. Okay? Until the cities are wasted without inhabitants, till all of the big trees are cut down, and there's nothing left, that's going to be the nature of your call. And you're going to die with all the cities having been wasted and all the lumber having disappeared. And But there is a promise. There will be a root. I love this. That out of one of those trees, there'll be a little root that because of what you've shared in your faithfulness to perform God's call on your life and to declare with your mouth the truths that the people will never accept in this generation, a little root will spring up. It'll be the root of Jesse. And out of that root will grow an enormous harvest that will bring the truth of the gospel. I think when Simeon and Anna were challenged, can't you imagine Anna's family? Anna, what are you doing? Are you nuts? Come on home. Why, why are you spending all this time in the temple? Perhaps Anna said, because ringing in my ears are the words of Isaiah, the greatest prophecies about the Christ, that he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That he will be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace, our reconciliation, will be laid upon him. Can't, can't you just sense that somehow this dear faithful lady, even in the midst of all of the non-support that she likely was getting, was hanging on to promises that had been articulated by a man with a dirty mouth that God had cleansed. They become the greatest words. And you have this Messiah musical. And, you know, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords, so powerful that even the king, when it was performed the first time, had to stand in awe because Isaiah was gifted because he had been cleansed and forgiven and empowered to declare the mysteries of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that he saw when he first came into God's presence. And he saw it because he got his eyes 
in the right place. What king needs to die in your life for you to see God more fully and completely? Are you perhaps afraid that if you were to see God more fully and completely, that he would ask you to do something that uh, perhaps you don't want to do or feel you shouldn't do? Uh, as as uh, traveling these, these camp meetings, I don't know what it was like here, um, but every Sunday afternoon, the missionaries had the Sunday afternoon service. And, and of course, they'd show up in their missionary garb. And uh, when they, uh, they had pictures, often they had slides. And uh, all the young people, of course, we were required to sit in the front two rows, three rows. And, and the last slide, almost always, I kid you not, was the picture of the sun setting behind a hill or more likely a grass hut. And the missionary would say, and now who will go for us to Ugabuga <laughs> and save these dear people? And the who always, he was looking or she was looking at the front three rows of young people. And we all just automatically ducked, you know, <laughs> take him, you know, take him. I don't want to go to Ugabuga. Well, there's this fear, isn't there? That if we really surrender, if we give up, that which is in the way of our seeing God fully and completely, that somehow God will call us to something that we will not want to do. But here's the truth. He will put in us the desire. I don't know what you would fear. Some of you are sitting here tonight, not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but you know that you have resisted God's call. And you've resisted now to the point where you're 60 or 70 years of age and you think it's too late. I've got news for you. It's never too late to get your eyes on Jesus and to ask him to restore to you whatever purpose in this Kairos moment that he has for you and to give you the opportunity now to contribute to what God is going to do next. Some of you young people, you're working with all kinds of possibilities and probabilities. I'm not going to look at you and say, who's going to go to Ooga Booga? But I am going to say to you that now is the time to make that decision. That whatever God says, I will do. Wherever he calls, I will go. I'll turn my eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, those kings that have kept me from seeing him, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Would you sing that with me? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'm going to have you sing it again, and this time ask the Holy Spirit, for what thing of earth 
needs to be dimmed. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit can speak to you? I believe it. What thing has gotten too much of your attention that's caused you to not see who God is and who God desires you to be because of who he is? And then sitting right there, we don't have an altar rail. One of the things I love working with the Salvation Army is they don't have altar rails either. They take the front pews and turn them around to face the congregation. And they call it the mercy seat. Don't you love it? That's what they do. And if you go to a Salvation Army meeting, when it comes time for the call, for surrender and commitment, for salvation, the service, they'll turn those front pews around and they'll say, come to the mercy seat. We don't have that capability here tonight. It would be difficult for some of these folding chairs. I'm afraid you might get caught up in one and, and be permanently disabled because uh, it's closed on you unexpectedly. But we can believe that an altar is right there, right there with you, right? And so as we sing that again, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you, would you, just like you did for Isaiah, if there's any king that's in the way, would you help us to kill it? Would you help it to grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace? And then give us the witness of the Spirit that because we have turned our eyes fully upon you, that you will use us however you choose to use us. We're cautious. We, we want to say yes, and we're a little fearful, to be honest, that there may be some things you'll ask us to say yes to that, that just are a little overwhelming. But we believe that your will is good and perfect. And if it's something that we find is too hard for us at this moment, that in your mercy and grace, you're going to plant and water the desire so that we can say yes and be used of God. Lord, some of us in this place have been laboring all of our lives for generation, for, for decades, and we've not seen any fruit. God, would you help us to have the faith of Isaiah that even if the cities have been destroyed and the trees have been cut down and we don't see any fruit, that because we've been faithful in a succeeding generation, you're going to reveal your purposes through our faithfulness. So thank you, Lord. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. May it be so. And all of God's people said, Amen. All right. Lord, we just thank you for this time that we've had here together tonight. As we leave this place, Lord, we just pray, continue by your spirit working in our hearts, Lord. 
for those who uh, who need to spend some time to linger, to pray, or who would like someone to pray with you, Lord, uh, or with you, uh, feel free to stay and we will we'll do that. Um, but now as you leave, go now in the power of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe.